AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, We guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Waiting on Reparations. You're listening to Waiting on Reparations, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, hey, hey. Just finished watching the debate between Trump and Biden. Both of these niggas is hiding behind the lying. It's obvious one of them is getting high when he's sweating on stage like he's shitting in his diapers. Yeah, I haven't seen it in my life, sir. But it's okay because come November, yeah. I'm going to get in that voting booth and I'll remember. He thinks America's great and it'll get greater. That's why he's on stage sounding like a dictator. His tax came out. He ain't making big paper. Trying to help Wall Street take what they can get later. If you was watching, be afraid of it all. If we talk civilization, it's the way that it fall. When it comes to November, be ready to brawl. Because they want the course tip the scale, making a call. So they talked about the Supreme Court and then some climate change. I saw this nigga flying into the blindest rage. Might need to rewind the frame because these niggas like fucking twice my age. <laughs> Yo, twice the age, you better make it a triple. When these niggas was kids, candy's costing a nickel. We found ourselves in one hell of a pickle. This why I don't be trusting these public officials. Shit. <laughs> hey. My name is Dope Knife. I'm Lingua Franca. We are waiting, waiting on, on reparations. reparations. Hurry up. Well, I'm a little shell-shocked, to be completely honest with everybody. We just... We just, we just uh, finished watching the debate. Yeah, we pulled out the laptops and we poured a couple glasses of wine and twisted up something. Well, I twisted up something and we watched the debate and um, that was fucking nuts. Hey, yo, Chris Wallace is fired. Uh, My homie sent me, he was like, 
What if Chris Wallace at some point had just been like, so for, for some background, Chris Wallace did a terrible job moderating the debate, just let Trump talk over him the whole time and didn't really like help him or enforce him adhering to the guidelines with regards to respecting the two minutes each candidate would give it. And so my homie sent me a text message. He was like, what if Chris Wallace had just been like, would you shut the fuck up for a goddamn minute? To which I responded, I would find Chris Wallace's home address and anonymously send this motherfucking nudes well, <laughs> as a reward for doing his duty of keeping that shit in check because it just it devolved into toddlerish bickering. I mean, I don't want to get numerous points. I don't want to get any tin tin foil hat shit, but I wouldn't be shocked if the point was for him to let Trump go on and ramble like that. I mean, there was barely any substance. And I mean, it was it was pretty much dictated by Trump that there wasn't going to be any substance in the debate. He wasn't, I mean, at at this point, I think anybody who is talking to you or pretending that Trump is in control of the facts of any situation or speaks with any substance or authority on anything I don't know. I think you got to question what that person's motivation is or how smart that person is. It doesn't mean Joe Biden won. It doesn't mean Joe Biden lost. I don't think that given what was going down, I don't think that there was anything to win as far as Joe Biden is concerned. It was just a shit show. Yeah. So they covered climate change, which I was pleased that they did. Uh, They talked about law and order, which, you know, is in regards to the protests that have been taking place all across the country for the last five months. COVID was a big topic. I thought COVID was a spot where Joe Biden was shining a little bit. But they did not cover reparations at all, though. They did not. Mm-mm. But you know who is going to cover reparations? Well, that would be us, of course. So today we're finally getting around to the topic that we've been waiting on. Reparations. This will be first in imaginably many episodes on the topic. But today we're particularly looking at arguments for reparations grounded in the history of land policy in the states and speaking with Ja'Cory Arthur, a hip-hop artist and city councilman-elect in the city of Louisville about reparations and a black agenda for local governments. Yes, yes, yes. We feel we're owed for the labor that was stolen from our ancestors. And, you know, we'll get into the dollars and cents and of how much might be owed and what redistribution could look like in a later episode. But less well-known than this theft is the way that the wealth we have managed to accumulate has been pilfered again and again ever since. It's important that people understand how that shit contributed and led to the racial wealth inequality that we see today. This link is one that Todd Nisi Coates also makes in his landmark case for reparations in Atlantic in 2014. A timeless read if you haven't checked it out yet, by the way. Coates talks about sharecropping, debt peonage, about voter intimidation. Yeah, but what stands out to the piece, for me at least, is his synthesis of the research on the various kinds of land that perpetrated against former slaves and their progeny. 
Coates makes note of an 18-month investigation undertaken by the Associated Press involving interviews with more than a thousand people and examination of tens of thousands of public records, all weaved together to document theft of black land across the eras. Stretching all the way back from the antebellum period, their work uncovered over 400 victims and 24,000 acres of land valued in the tens of millions of dollars, all stolen through mechanisms as elegant as legal trickery and those as blunt as cold-blooded murder. So, for example, on October 4th, 1908, 50 hooded white men surrounded the home of David Walker, a black farmer in Hickman, Kentucky, and ordered him to come out for a whipping. Walker refused and instead fired at the hooded men, who then set fire to his house, according to accounts of newspapers at the time that recited in the Los Angeles Times article on the AP's research. Walker ran out, followed by his four children and his wife with their baby in her arms. All of them were shot by the mob. Three children were wounded. Walker, his wife, and two of his children died, including one who burned to death inside the house. No one was ever charged with the killings. The records reveal that Walker's two-and-a-half-acre farm was simply merged with the property of the white neighbor, who sold it off to another man shortly after. The second man's daughter still owns the land today. So yeah, sometimes it's violent vigilantes, and sometimes it's the current bureaucracy of the state. For example, in 1964, the L.A. Times reports the state of Alabama sued cousins Lemon Williams and Lawrence Hudson, litigating that they had no right to their two 40-acre farms in Sweetwater, Alabama. The land, officials argued, was property of the state. A judge very simply ordered them off the land and there was nothing they could do about it. Despite the fact that years later in the AP's uh, investigation, it was found that deeds and tax records clearly proved that the family had owned the land for almost a century. Shit. So how does that sort of shit happen? Like, what's an example of that today? I mean, well, we'll talk about this in a second, but eminent domain has historically been a means through which governments have seized lands uh, belonging to black folks. And then, you know, um, particularly in the era of urban renewal and remains a tool to this day, Though I haven't seen particular documentation of ways it could be used, through, like in a racially oppressive yeah. manner to date. Like, I mean, I wouldn't doubt if it's still going Something on. Like, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's not yeah, as like yeah. overt as hooded men showing up and right, shit. Right. No, and I would love if we utilized like eminent domain to like seize all the hotels that are empty right now and give them to homeless people shit like that to like redistribute wealth and resources in a decidedly anti-racist anti-classist way but I feel like typically it's only used to just downtrod the already downtrodden in Killer Mike's song Reagan Mike says Makers, we all talk having greens, but none of us on acres. If none of us on acres and none of us grow wheat, then who will feed our people when our people need to eat? This is seemingly decrying the lack of agricultural knowledge and land stewardship in the black community. But the fact is that violence, both mob-induced and state-initiated, have forcefully driven down our ability to provide for ourselves, tending to the land ever since the days we had to do so by force of others. While general farm ownership has declined broadly since the Industrial Revolution as agribusiness becomes concentrated in fewer and fewer hands, black ownership has declined two and a half times faster than white ownership, according to a federal report in 1982. And this land theft is not a uniquely Southern phenomenon, nor is it confined to lands tended to black folks for agriculture. Owning a family home has always been a practical way to build wealth as a family grows equity in their home through monthly mortgage payments 
and the home appreciates in value. Many are able to borrow against the equity in their home for their needs or even sell the home at a profit when they're looking to cash out. Not so much for African descendants of slaves, though, as Coates lays bare in his discussion of the fight for black home ownership in Chicago. From the 1930s to the 1960s, black folk across America were largely shut out of the legit mortgage market. And folks in Chicago, as a result, turned to buying homes on contract, a predatory scheme that made them responsible for overinflated monthly housing costs as if they were renters, but then also paying for the upkeep of the place itself as if they were owners. In a contract sale, the seller kept the deed until the contract was paid in full. So if a boiler blew and a black tenant had to come up with like 500 bucks to replace it and couldn't, and in turn couldn't afford to pay their monthly mortgage payment, the seller with whom they made the contract could force them to forfeit their deposit, all of their monthly payments, and the property itself, evicting the family and selling the house again at an inflated price to the next black family looking for the American dream. This happened over and over again, as reported in the Chicago News Daily in 1963. I don't want to get too off topic, but this just kind of reminded me, and it's just like something that they didn't bring up. They didn't talk at all about the eviction crisis that's going on right now. No, I feel like we barely touched on just the, like, how to get the economy to recover from our current recession. I don't blame Biden for that. No, that was totally a moderator. It was the moderator yeah. and obviously Fucking Trump Chris Wallace doing what he was doing. Dumbass. But yeah, it's like, it's not even that the questions were necessarily all bad. I mean, obviously the whole linking of race and violence is some bullshit. Woo! But... I just felt there was no control to that shit. So important things like all the tens of thousands of people like facing eviction right now in the middle of a pandemic and stuff like that doesn't get brought up. I'm sorry I took it off topic. And I think it's really interesting how, yeah, the questions they choose frame like what policies are viable, like period. And so the fact that they don't even bring up, like I found myself as a reluctant, you know, potential Biden voter reassured by a lot of Biden's like stridency and like steady handedness throughout the debate. Mm. But I think that speaks more to the way that the moderator's questions frame what viable policies are Mm. than it does like the breadth of the candidates policy knowledge and and political will and courage uh, in the first place. It's like, oh, within the scope of what they're talking about, this seems reasonable Mm -hmm. when it's like I you know I want a fucking Green New Deal I want a fucking mortgage (laughs) and rent cancellation you know these are things that I want and have been fighting for uh, you know through the limited powers I I have as a local legislator and because they don't even get brought up it's like almost like a a form of brainwashing yeah or through watching and accepting the framing of these questions Uh, what's like we get sort of it's manufacturing consent it's manufacturing consent yeah Yeah. now um i got okay back back to to how yeah you ended it on um black families getting evicted so why the fuck wouldn't they just get a normal mortgage well it wasn't so simple While white homeowners themselves used every trick in the book, from restrictive covenants governing who could buy a house and from whom, to straight-up terrorist shit, the government did their part, too. Congress created the Federal Housing Administration in 1934 to ensure private mortgages, causing a drop in interest rates and a decline in the size of the down payment required to buy a house, lowering barriers to access to homeownership for many whites. However, the FHA 
also made use of a system of maps that rated neighborhoods according to their perceived stability. Green-colored, A-rated areas on the maps indicated neighborhoods in high demand that, as one appraiser put it, lacked a single foreigner or Negro. These were neighborhoods considered excellent prospects for insurance. Neighborhoods where black people lived were rated D and drawn in red and were usually considered ineligible for FHA backing. Mm. Because they were colored in red, that gave birth to the term redlining that has come to be widely known as a racist practice with regards to mortgage lending. This practice of redlining, declaring neighborhoods where black people live as ineligible for mortgages, spread to the already racist mortgage industry as a whole. Since the FHA and private lenders wouldn't approve mortgages for properties owned by blacks either, black homeowners and communities couldn't sell their houses. So the homes essentially became worthless. And so, by these means, blacks were excluded from the greatest mass-based opportunity for wealth accumulation in American history. Hot on the tails of having built the country with our labor and not paid shit for it. The wide net of housing practices that have taken place from mortgage lending policies to rental applications to the like violent physical theft of land by white vigilante mobs mm-hmm. in earlier eras. Like it's all tied together in a way that black folks have been dispossessed of wealth we've endeavored to create against all odds across the decades. Yeah. And it creates like a, a secondary argument for reparations. Not only the labor that was stolen to create the wealth this country has benefited from, but the labor that this government and, and uh, white people, you know, white supremacists have stolen from us over and over again as we've attempted to climb. And uh, not only that, but with urban renewal, many of these black communities were erased as federal governments flushed local ones with cash to clear slums and invest in public projects. So it's a precursor to urban renewal, but something that operated in a very similar fashion is when the U.S. seized a land belonging to the SP family in Vera Beach, Florida, through eminent domain to build an airfield, I believe in the 1940s. The SPs were awarded $13,000 for their 147 acres, which included 30 acres of fruit grove, Two houses, 40 house lots, which amounted to that 13000 sum that they were paid amounted to one-sixth of the price per acre that the Navy paid white neighbors for similar lands with fewer improvements. After the Second World War, the Navy turned over the airfield to the city of Vero Beach, ignoring the SB's plea to buy back their land. The city sold part of it at $1,500 an acre to the Los Angeles Dodgers for a 1965 spring training facility. And in 1999, that former Navy land, 60% of which once belonging to the ESPYs, was now worth more than $6 million. That's fucked up. And we've seen that here locally, too. A fight I've recently engaged in here in Athens is for justice and reparations for the community of Lenintown, which is a black enclave that existed um, near the University of Georgia campus. Starting in the 1900s and up until the 1960s, where working class black folks had scraped together enough money to buy homes uh, with the restrictive covenants that barred them from buying properties in many white dominant neighborhoods. It was one of the few places in town that they could settle. Mm -hmm. They built a community there, but under urban renewal, the University of Georgia, 
receive money from the federal government and support from the city government to essentially clear out and demolish the neighborhood, paying the families a paltry sum of somewhere from like $1,400 for their homes and displacing them into public housing because there was nowhere else in that house for them to live. They couldn't buy houses pretty much anywhere else. And how long ago was this? This was in the 1960s. And so a lot of those children who watched the bulldozers pull up and demolish the houses next door to them while they played in their yards and whose parents had to pay rent to the University of Georgia to continue to live in the houses that they owned when they refused to move. Um, Those children are still alive today and like asking for the government to make amends for this conspiracy that they uh, were complicit in um, back back in the 1960s. And the mayor himself today has noted that those houses, were they still standing today? Were they not demolished to create student dorms would be valued in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars today. And then think of the, just think of like the ripple effect of having that land stay where it was supposed to stay. Exactly. Thinking about their students, their, their, their children might've actually been able to afford to go to the university of Georgia what they could have used the equity in those homes to buy mm-hmm. anything from opportunities for their kids to participate in competitive sports or SAT tutoring to college tuition or even something as simple as like simple luxuries like a vacation. Yeah. And those opportunities were denied to them. They were given you know a you know a stack and told to get out. So and what, forced into public housing, which destroyed a lot of these families. So what went down with your fight? And so people took issue with the fact that we called this an act of white terrorism in the resolution that was presented. Uh, I think in terms of diplomacy, folks felt, folks by folks I mean my fellow commissioners, felt that that was really harsh language that would like aggravate tensions between us and the University of Georgia if we were to claim that this was an act of white terrorism. And so, as well, there were some concerns about the legality because in the Georgia State Constitution, there is a clause preventing folks, it's called the gratuities clause, preventing local governments from just giving money to people. So we wouldn't be able to just give the money that's owed to the descendants. It would have to be something a bit more creative than that. It would have to be something a little bit more creative than that. And so what we did get out of that conversation was a fucking task force. I'm so, like, being task forces, <laughs> I swear to God, I'm just... Uh... I mean, how are you going to get any but, like, tasks co- done if you don't have a force to do it? <laughs> okay. So a committee <laughs> consistent of myself and a, and a geographer and many of the living descendants of Town to figure out what reparations looks like. Mm-hmm. And within the bounds of law, what could it, what could it look like here? So the, so the fight is ongoing. I think um, the public battle for it has been won, but now the more bureaucratic well, uh, this is parts de- of it This remain. is definitely the, the most, I guess, mainstream that reparations has been discussed in my lifetime, personally. Yeah. I mean, um, I think when Marianne Williamson brought it yeah, up in one of the first presidential debates for the first time yeah she's probably yeah, a major a major party like platform candidate that I saw it yeah being had like about really discussed. really yeah i still don't understand why we wait for trump to be president before we make it 
like uh, it, a, as big an issue as it is. Well, if Obama had brought it up, they would have been like, oh, you blackity black. I know, you I know. black, 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 black. No, I know. Trust me, I know, and I understand all that. But it's just like, we got open fascists trying to implement a fucking dictatorship coup and shit. I don't know, yo. It's like they've controlled damn near all the government for the last three years. It just feels weird that we're trying to get Nazis to listen to us about reparations because they don't care at all. Well, I would argue that half of the country who didn't vote last time, many of whom are African-American, would be the target audience of bringing that up now. And that's what we're trying to build. They're like a movement around socialism, etc. As the left, sorry, I just burped into the microphone. <laughs> kind of fucking drunk. Get off my ass. Though, though the scope of viable policy is constrained by these debates and constrained by these candidates, I think that the left is very much alive in this country. And there's a lot of room through things like the Gravel Institute that just launched this week. Oh, yeah. that I saw that video. That shit was dope. And through conversations on the shop floor and in our classrooms as, you know, you know as myself as an educator interfacing with young people to bring these, these policies to life and to bring them to relevance through connecting with folks who are unlikely to engage civically at, at present, but could if the government actually offered them something. Yeah. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Today, we're joined by Ja'Cory Arthur, councilman-elect for the Metro City Council in Louisville, Kentucky, as well as a music educator and artist. How are you today, Ja'Cory? Oh, I'm 
in between fighting the fight and doing what's right, which this is one and the same. Uh, definitely dealing with the balances of, of people who are coming from places of ignorance in our fight for justice and trying to teach as much as I can, trying to educate so I can eventually legislate. Yeah, so what does that educational process look like for you with the public? Because as a elected official myself, I find myself balancing between uh, listening and trying to legislate in ways that represent uh, the general public while also using my platform to educate. So I wonder if what that looks like in your own experience. Well, in, in movement work, leadership and fellowship, you can communicate to the movement. You can have the movement communicate to you and you can have the movement communicate with within themselves. When you have to educate people about issues, it's important because sometimes they just simply don't know or they're unaware of the seriousness but it's also important on the, the flip side for them to communicate those issues with you. I have a, an upper hand in this district in Louisville because I am a part of the neighborhood that has been the most neglected, the neighborhood that is the most challenged. That's where I live. And on the other side of the district, we have almost the, the inverse or the opposite of, of what we're dealing with when it comes to wealth positions and home ownership and, and job opportunities and educational attainment. I exist with the weakest links, so I know what we need. I am very much so the, the person that politicians talk about when they run, and they talk about them from a third-person perspective. I talk about it from a first-person perspective. I am the people that I represent. So could you tell us a little bit about more about who you are and your background and your music history, educational history, and, you know, how you ended up running for office? I am my work, essentially. I am my, my different roles in life. I say that as Ja'Cory, born, raised, and still living in the western of Louisville, proudly living in the western of Louisville, originally from a neighborhood known as Parkland where Muhammad Ali was born and raised. Now I live in the Russell neighborhood just west of downtown. The West End is the highest concentration of black people in the state of Kentucky. I'm also known as 1200 as a recording artist. I perform and compose hip hop and classical music, oftentimes fusing those genres together. I've worked with a number of symphony orchestras, of course here locally, but also around the world, across the country, rapping and performing as a classically trained percussionist. I have two degrees in music education from the University of Louisville, right here in my city. I'm also known as Mr. Arthur when I travel to schools, community centers, boys and girls clubs, teaching music, teaching life skills, uh, teaching about black history. And I'm also known as Professor Arthur at Simmons College of Kentucky, our city's HBCU, the first institution to allow higher education for black people in this state. So between being Mr. Arthur, Professor Arthur, 1200, Jacory. That all kind of led me to being known as Councilman Arthur here in the future because I travel to schools in my professional career and I see the, the disparity that exists and the differences that exist from school to school. And I can't realize that the bottom five schools, the lowest performing schools in this state are in the west end of Louisville where I am and I love so much and want to serve so much and they're all predominantly black, three quarters black. I can't exist as only a teacher or only as a musician who talks about these issues and teaches these issues. I have to go from that educate to that legislate world if I truly want to impact these issues. So that's why I decided to run. That's why I won. I truly believe, and, and here I am. I get 
inaugurated in January 2021 to, to actually get in the office and do something about all of these issues legally. So, did um being a musician impact your advocacy? Being a musician impacted my advocacy in a number of ways because not only did I bake these issues into my music itself, but I also tried to bring along the rest of the bunch of people who didn't necessarily feel as if they had an outlet to speak about these issues through through music, through all arts. I'm also an arts organizer. So outside of me just performing and composing and recording the music, I'm going to organize around other artists and make sure that they are a part of initiatives, make sure they have access to grants, make sure that not, when I get access to funding, I break it down and feed the whole block. I'm very much so one that is willing to either come out uh, breaking even or come out in the red sometimes just to make sure I'm feeding other people and helping other people pay bills. Yeah. That's more important to me than my individual success because my individual success does not equal a collective uplift. And so many of our musicians in the black community, they get successful and they, they make it. And all of a sudden they forget where they come from. Yeah. They forget the people on the bottom to help them get to the top. And they still... Uh, refer to us in their lyrics, they still talk about the struggles of living in black ghettos. Uh, that comes out of their lips, and then they turn around and talk about their Rolexes or their cars and uh, being able to travel around the world. It's almost kind of ironic that they, they put those lyrics together because meanwhile, we still live at the, the bottom of the society that we built, and they reap the benefits of all of our failure. So I was in a position where I could teach about that in my music as a, as a teacher, as an artist, using art as just simply a medium to, to teach those issues and also do something about those issues through organizing work. So we talked a little bit about how musicianship has informed your advocacy and perhaps even prepared you for public office. But I wonder if there's any media framings that you have to push back on as a hip hop artist working in politics and education. And it grew out of... Um, having listened to an episode of five things uh, with you in which an interviewer asked you if you had both parents at home. And I wondered, I heard that. And I wondered, I was like, does she ask every interviewee that? And if not, why you? But I appreciated the way that you clarified that you were raised by many people, aunts, cousins, other family, as a means of pushing back on dominant narratives about black families and a asserting a positive truth about how our communities work. So are, do you find that uh, there are other types of media framings that you have to push back on um, as a hip-hop artist working within politics and education? What I like to do anytime I'm talking with media, whether that's independent media, mainstream media, or anyone in between, is to contextualize data. I don't like to entertain stereotypes because what that interviewer in the podcast that you just referred to didn't contextualize is that really all successful people are coming from a place of, of being raised by a village. White parents, white kids on the east side of Louisville, you aren't just raised by your two parents and then you go off to college and you find some sort of success. You inherit wealth from the people who existed before your parents, your grandparents and great, 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 great grandparents. And then your school is a community that helps raise you. You have families horizontally and vertically that contribute to you becoming a civically engaged, successful citizen. Some of that is privilege and some of that is, is, is structural, which is, is definitely tied together. 
So it's important to realize that a lot of those stereotypes are really just myths, Mm -hmm. which we'll we'll get into as we talk about reparations. But when I speak to media, I'm I'm speaking using data. I don't like to really give my opinion or or entertain stereotypes. I mean, there are studies that show black men are, are the most involved fathers in this country. So we hear about black men not being involved in their children's lives over and over and over. And it's this repeated trope. But when in reality, we're more involved than anyone. So uh, I like to speak from data. I like to make sure I'm, I'm speaking from a place of, of scholarship and not just stereotype. I'm in an interesting place because, yes, I have, I have protested in the streets, but I'm less interested in protesting in the streets at this point. I don't want to No, I no longer want to protest in the streets. I want to work on legislation that is going to help you own that street. Yeah. I have a different role now and I have to come to terms with that role and other people have to come to terms with that role. We are all uh, really supposed to just get in where we fit in. Some people, your only outlet is to protest in the streets. Some people, your only outlet is to make a song about racial injustice. Some people, your only outlet is to paint a mural. Some people, your only outlet is to have a podcast and that's okay. Some people's only outlet is to write laws. Some people's only outlets is to post a tweet about it. Some people's will write about it. Everyone has a different role. Not everyone is supposed to do everything. And we have to realize that in this work. Where I'm at as an artist, as a teacher, as an activist, and eventually as a politician, I'm all of that kind of rolled up into one big ball. and. My life would not be what it is if if those elements of my life were not fused together. So the Breonna Taylor tragedy for me has forced me to lean into all of what I've already been doing even more. Mm -hmm. I turn it up even more. I was already rapping about gentrification, which led to her, her assassination. I was already rapping about systematic change with our law enforcement which we've seen microscopically here locally, but it needs to happen in ways that are going to change it centuries from now because our police department was actually started two centuries ago, 1820s, and it was designed to patrol slaves, yeah. to kill slaves, yeah. to kidnap and bring slaves back to their, their slave pens in downtown Louisville. So for, for me, my involvement has kind of evolved over the past few months. But so many people in Louisville and beyond Louisville, but so many people in Louisville here locally from what I can see, are thinking too short-term, thinking too small. We don't need to be fighting for justice for the past four months. We need to be fighting for justice for the past 400 years. Mm -hmm. And I don't even just mean the past 400 years. We need to be thinking about 400 years from now in the future. And that's why reparations is an essential conversation to have. Well, that's why I want want to ask you about that. Like, what what are your thoughts on that? If you don't advocate for reparations, there is no justice. Like, there's... There is no racial justice or race relations being fixed or being healed or any of this changing if we don't have wealth, generational wealth to pass on to our children. We are the only group in this country that face special mistreatment, so we need special treatment. There are three groups in America, in the United States of America. The people who already lived here, the natives, the indigenous people, the people who decided to live here, immigrants, who were white, brown, yellow, and in between, and in in some cases nowadays they're black, and the people who were forced to live here. I descend from the people who were forced to live here. I am forced to live here. I did not hop on a plane and come to the United States of America for scholarship. 
My ancestors were on boats and came here on slave ships. There's a huge difference between these three populations. And what we've tried to do in 2020 is almost create this, uh, this connectivity between us as black people who descend from slavery and every other oppressed group. There are plenty of oppressed groups. Your oppression is not the same as my oppression. My oppression was, was law. My oppression prevented me from being a part of a society that I built. My oppression is centuries long. My oppression was 250 years of slavery, 100 years of Jim Crow, where slavery locked us down and Jim Crow locked us out. So if we're not having a conversation about addressing that oppression through direct payments to the American descendants of slavery, or ADOS for short, we're not having a conversation at all. We, we can't talk about home ownership. We can't talk about black business, black banking, financial literacy, getting college degrees. None of that closes the racial wealth gap. The racial wealth gap is over $100 trillion wide. You don't fix $100 trillion with a degree from college, which in some cases keeps you in poverty even more because colleges are advertising degrees to black folk who take out loans who don't even get jobs in that field. Now you're just paying 40, 50 years on student loans and you ain't even got no job. There are millions of, of black people in this country who are unemployed, who got college degrees. So reparations is, is that is like, that's the non-starter for me. If, if a candidate doesn't even advocate or support for direct payment reparations to ADOS, I will never vote for you. I will never advocate for you. And if you're not talking about reparations when you're talking about racial injustice, you're not talking about racial injustice. You're just talking. Mm. So what does that mean for you at a local level? I mean, I know ideally, and I agree with you, we need uh, reparations at a federal level to bring to bear um, the immense wealth that is undertaxed by these giant corporations, the top 1% of people, and redistributing that to make up for the racial injustices that our people have suffered for 400 years. But does that at all influence your legislative agenda for the Louisville Metro City Council? There can't be local local reparations. I mean, you can call it that, but it undermines the national project because of cities that are already penny-pitching and, and desperately in need of dollars. If cities start talking about paying reparations to ADOS, then the federal government gets let off the hook. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden they feel like they don't have to pay anything because Louisville just gave a, a $10 million grant to the West End of Louisville, which isn't all black. So what I do here locally is I'm going to make sure I'm advocating for an agenda that is black and concentrated in blackness and, and ADOSness. That doesn't mean reparations. That means centering policies on the people who have been impacted by past policies. And what I also need to do for my elected official position is advocate for reparations going up the political ladder, putting pressure on the mayor to use his position as the president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors responsible for over 85 percent of our country's population to put pressure on the federal government, on the administration that can actually make reparations happen. I can't make it happen down here in Louisville, and I'm not interested in making it happen just in Louisville. We can't close the racial wealth gap in Louisville unless we close the racial wealth gap in America. Mm -hmm. We can't close the racial wealth gap in Chicago unless we close the racial wealth gap in America. Any city that you go to that has a black ghetto, all of them do. We can't close those gaps locally. We can put band-aids on the issues and we can move the needle a little bit, but it's going to take pressure from all politicians on a lower level to push to the higher level 
to the folks who can actually implement this, to the Mitch McConnells of the world, to the AOCs of the world, to the Cory Bookers of the world, to actually make this happen. Mm-hmm. And, and that's my responsibility. Of course, I'm still doing the work and advocating for a black agenda down here. But up here, I'm barking and letting you know, yo, you need to fix us like you broke us. I hate when people say something was senseless. We had senseless shootings and senseless killings. It makes sense to me. If I can't pay my bills, if I can't put food on the table, I'm going to do whatever I got to do to make sure that happens. Whether that's selling dope, breaking in your house to take your dope or to take your money, doing whatever I can. Stealing, killing, and dealing are happening because we are desperate to meet our needs. We are desperate to survive. Ain't no senselessness happening here. We were designed to destroy ourselves, to destroy each other, because the design for us to be destroyed didn't work. We are still here in this country after 400 plus years of the most inhumane treatment in history. I was just listening to a brother talk the other day about walking outside and how hot it was and how he couldn't wait to get home to his air conditioning and drink cold water. Can you imagine working in a field under under that type of intense heat from can't see in the morning to can't see at night and never getting to go home to 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 comfort, never getting adequate anything and you being born into that and your kids being born into that and your your mothers and your grandmothers being raped, your your men being being humiliated, being forced to have sex with their mothers. Are you allowed to cuss on this, co- yeah, on this yeah, podcast? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Where do you think the term motherfucker came from? And I don't even cuss. I'm just saying that to drive a point home. We have gone through the most inhumane, unimaginable conditions known to mankind. And we are still here. So the, the new form of methods isn't to necessarily destroy us, even though we see that happening because Breonna Taylor was destroyed. George Floyd was destroyed. Ahmaud Aubrey was destroyed. We're still getting destroyed. But the new method of destruction in the black community is for us to destroy ourselves and to destroy each other. And that is the peak of the violence that we see. There was violence before the the shooting in the street actually occurred. Mm -hmm. The violence was you being starved. The violence was you not being able to get a job. The violence was you not even being able to afford to live in your place where you're supposed to call home. That's violence in itself before we commit the violence of hurting each other. So could you give us a little more background on the 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 org, like what y'all do, where y'all uh, members are located, just for folks listening that might not be familiar with like what you say when you're talking about like the movement? ADOS101.com. We do political education. Our movement's about three things. Identification, which I just talked about. Do you descend from slavery? Do you descend from Jim Crow? Uh, you're not just black by look. You're black by lineage. Reparations. You know, direct payments and a, an entire political package that goes into building wealth for our, our generations. And then concentration, which is a political agenda, a black agenda that is anchored in who we are. A lot of people get mad at us saying we don't advocate for other struggles. It ain't about that. It's called American Descendants of Slavery for a reason. So if you don't descend from slavery, this ain't your movement. Go find some other coalition. We are anchored in data and we are anchored in justice for a specific group a very specific group. And if you need more information, ADOS101.com. That's that's a, a group, a movement I belong to. We got chapters all across the country. All right, thank you. Appreciate that. 
Hey, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, today. yeah, this was great. Super enlightening. All right, peace. Love. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. So that was Ja'Cory Arthur, councilman-elect and hip-hop artist in Louisville, Kentucky. And now we're going to turn to discuss a little bit of music. Let's do it. Okay, so for the music discussion, we're going to be talking about rappers Killer Mike and T.I. specifically for some of their outspokenness about the issue of reparations. And eventually we're going to be taking a little listen and discussion about their 2018 song, 40 Acres, that they did with the uh, rapper B. Rossi. Um, now, rapper activist Killer Mike has been outspoken about the topic of reparations in the past, citing strong support for Representative John Connor's H.R. 40 bill, also known as the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposal for African Americans Act. Speaking about it in an interview with Charlemagne the God for The Hollywood Reporter, he said, when you ask me about reparations, I have my ideas about what reparations are. But just as a people, we haven't had our black people meeting yet to see what we're asking for. Which I think is why the commission to study and develop reparations proposals is so important. Just like figuring out what it would look like, Mm -hmm. garnering input from the public about what it should look like. Because there is some division in the community about whether it's direct cash payments, whether it's investments in infrastructure and community development, community programming in predominantly black neighborhoods, mm-hmm. etc. So we do, I think, I you know, I agree with Mike here that we haven't had our black people meeting about <laughs> what we're actually looking what for. What we're asking for yet. He said uh he went on to say uh Dr. King started knowing his last two, three years of life. He started ask he said start asking for land, land grants, land lotteries. If you're an American descendant of slaves, this is all killer Mike. I want some type of reparations to be paid, given, or acclimated to you. But before we get to that part, we have to know what we're asking for. And then 
he throws out sort of some figures that help us understand a potential scope and scale um, in proportion to uh, reparations payments. For example, what I would say is if Georgia is 35% African-American and I would want 35% of the marijuana business going forth to be African-American, that means in terms of land ownership and development. So the actual cultivation of the crop in addition to the vending and stores, mm-hmm. the actual dispensaries yeah, themselves. Yeah, especially with the which legalization. Which is a whole other episode I think we're going to get into with regards to reparations that are owed given the war on drugs. Yeah. BET founder Robert Johnson over the summer put a number on it. He called for $14 trillion. He said, um, now's the time to go big. Short answers to, long, to the long horrific questions about the stains of slavery are not going to solve the inequality problem. We need to focus on wealth creation and wealth generation. And to do that, we must bring the descendants of slaves into equality with this nation. Not only for the sin or atonement of the sin of slavery and Jim Crowism and segregation, both de facto and de jure, but to cause America to live up to the concept and the notion that this nation was born on the idea of American exceptionalism. I'm convinced the problems we confront today can be solved, but it takes a big, bold action. So we got some platitudes in there, but at least yeah, there's like yeah, a... Yeah, I don't really know about that American exceptionalism shit. But I mean, again, this is all playing... I, I mean, you know, I, I guess I guess I'm like a lot more understanding to like current like mainstream politicians and just mainstream figures having to play that verbal game. And it's like when you know that the opposite is like they weren't talking about this shit at all. Sure. You know what I'm Hand saying? me the platitudes about reparations if you're going to actually address it. Robert Period. Johnson made this um, statement on uh, was CSNBC, CSNBC, the business yeah. NBC channel, and it's like the response to it was one of their stuffy-ass anchors was like, oh, Mr. Johnson, I've known you for decades, and I've, I've never heard you say anything that's quite frankly so extreme, so I know that you're serious talking about it, so please explain further. You know what I mean? It's just like... They're like, oh, exactly. Opening that conversation, I feel, is an important thing. And it's like if throwing out a term like American exceptionalism greases the wheels in the the setting that you're in and to the people, you know, the audience that you're because you don't have to convince me. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like I'm sitting here like, yeah, you know, we we get I get it, you know, but I'm not going to give them shit for. The having to grease the wheels. You know what I mean? Sure, I, it's, sure. it's politics. Yeah. I feel you. Yeah. I feel you. Um, now, for the pure music discussion, we're going to get into this track that I found called, oh, well, that I found. <laughs> this shit's been out there. But it's okay, a, Christopher Columbus. <laughs> it's a 2018 song by a TI called 40 Acres featuring Killer Mike and B. Rossi. So let's take a little listen to that. Right? Now the prison yard like the kind field. House nigga snitching that what got him killed. Nigga thought he made it cause he got a deal. First album pulled to been out of here. Not quite though. Back to selling blows. 24s on the center here. All right. So that is definitely a banger. What, what are your first initial thoughts to that? So something that I noticed as I was listening to this is that I, I, I fear and wonder if it perpetuates notions that have been forwarded through like... The Chappelle show's discussion of like reparations, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. So, just so that people who don't know, um, back in 2003 ish, 2004 ish, uh, Dave Chappelle did a famous skit where um, 
uh, reparations got passed and like everybody went and bought a Cadillac and started a record label. Yeah, and here it's talking about putting reparations in her handbag. Talking about uh, I spent my reparations on a jeweler. I bought a timepiece. Now there's no looking back. Yeah, that the, that was the hook, the refrain for the hook. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And 40, so, ac- forty acres and a mueller. I spent my reparations on a jeweler. I brought a timepiece. Now ain't no looking back. Now I'm asking the motherfuckers what the fuck they looking at. And so to counter that myself, uh, I think to recent study they've done on universal basic income in Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta, which my mentor, Patina Love, has taken part of the task force mm-hmm. on. And they found that in black communities, especially when people passed um, a form of basic income, black folks especially spend that extra money on basic necessities, on food and groceries, on rent, on doctor's appointments, on clothing for their families, things that they just needed to get by, as opposed to this popular conception of, oh, they're just going to buy Jordans and flat screens TVs. Mm -hmm. And so I think those same findings that they took away from that study that was done in Old Fourth Ward can apply to our broader thinking around what reparations will be used for. Like you give people money, they're going to buy land. They're going to buy education for their kids. They might buy a car. It's probably because they don't fucking take the bus currently and are trying to have a car. <laughs> There's jewels throughout the song as far as like lines where they're, they're, they're saying some shit that's like, ah, that's, that was clever. That was, oh, that was a good one. That was, that was a good point. That was a good line. But I mean, to be completely honest with you, I personally would think before hearing this, knowing how T.I. and Killer Mike have been talking about the issue of reparations, I guess I don't want to say it's disappointing because I do think that the song is a banger. Like the beat is dope. I think everybody's flowing. Everybody's rapping their ass off on it. The shit's dope. You know what I mean? The song's dope. But just from a personal standpoint, it's like, I don't know. It doesn't feel serious, you know? It feels fun. It, it reminds me of the way I felt the first time I saw Django, you know? Like, I was going expecting it to be like this hard, you know, like a hard, unrelenting look at a particular topic. And then it was like, oh, this is like fun. And well, like- that's how we normalize ideas at the same time. I think that's the power of hip-hop music to interlace topics of political potency with just like braggadocio and just regular ass rhymes to like bring it into common currency with like in the culture. But that's where I think everyone excels in their verses because I think everyone is hitting on those hitting on exactly that within their verses. Yeah. The hook refrain is the part that you hear three times though. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And the hook refrain is spent my reparation on a jeweler, which. Yeah. You know, I'm pretty sure that if we ever do get a point to where we're like seriously discussing um, reparations and like what Candace it could look Owens like, is bring Candace up Owens that line. and Tucker Carlson are going to be like, they're going to spend it on a jeweler. Look, and they're going to cite this. They're going to play this on Fox News. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's all that's all I'm saying about it. But I mean, I think objectively, the song is dope. Like, oh yeah, it's a know, banger. Yeah. Back in July, July seventeenth to be exact, Ti shared a two-page open letter with the UK insurance firm Lloyd's of London for reparations for their role in the transatlantic slave trade. 
He was quoted saying in the letter, Our people have been financially impaired and economically disabled due to systemic oppression and the institutional racism it leaves behind. Your commitment to reparations is an honorable one, but commitment without tangible actions is merely lip service, he writes in the letter. We demand a specific call to action that includes, but is not limited to, direct reparations be made to families who were ripped from their native lands and sold as property, while your company profited from the whole shameful endeavor. T.I. goes on to suggest four avenues for reparations, 10% ownership in Lloyd's to be given to the descendants of African slaves, accurate annual tracking of those reparations, a $1 million cash loan with 1% interest to every African-American adult once in their lifetime for the next 200 years, and at least one African-American member on its board, which really is not asking for much, honestly. And with regards to the board membership, I mean, the rest would be fucking dope and owed, frankly. Um, but then representation on the board, one member, like, that's... Fuck. How do y'all... Did y'all do that yet? Like, did, where... Like, what? <laughs> what? Did you, did you, did you, what? I think that's kind of going to some of the point that I was making, though, which is like, I feel like I wish Tia had put that into a song. Mm, yeah. You know, like, I, I wish he had rapped about that. Yeah. Like, I feel that, I feel, th- I just feel there's a whole audience or a whole, like, segment of the population that would have absorbed that knowledge or that or, or would absorb that information better if it rhymed and it was over a dope beat i just do i just i've always felt that's not like a criticism of ti that's just my feelings on the fucking power of hip-hop well and shit, my view you know? with hip-hop and all things politics as well has been if you're waiting around for someone else to do it mm-hmm. fucking do, do it. it well hey i do my part y'all motherfuckers gotta go listen to that shit don't forget that when we're not hosting this podcast and we're not helping run a city, that we're both two pretty dope hip-hop artists. So Dope Knife, look me up in the book, you know? I'm not just talking shit. I walk it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing my part. Well, all right. We are definitely going to be doing a episode coming up soon about voting and electoral politics and hip-hop's relationship to that. But, um, yeah, if you saw... What the fuck we watched tonight? I mean, you know, we kind of tipsy and I'm high. So, you know, we're coming through that filter. But I kind of felt like I should be really scared watching it. So I think that y'all should be scared too. Check your voter registration, particularly if you've moved recently. Make a plan to vote early in person or absentee. Uh, talk to some friends about getting out to vote too. And it's not just for the president. You can leave that shit blank mm-hmm. for all I fucking care. Vote down ballot. Look at these Senate races and these House, you know, these congressional races. Look at who's running for DA in your city. And make sure you're informed in order to vote for those things as well. Uh, let's get into some rapping things. Rapping things. Check, check, one, uh, two. Uh, check, check, one, one two, two, one, two. How we two. do, how hey. we do. Check, check, uh, one, two. Uh, check, check, one, two. How we do, how we do. Check, check, one, two. Hey. Check, check, one, one two. two. How one, we two. do, how hey. we do. 
Check, check, one, uh, two, check, uh, check, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, hey. welcome everybody to wait in on reparations. And can't nobody say that the people was never patient. And if you fuck around, then we gon' start the demonstration. Been talking about the shits of segregation. They wanna go and tell you that they ain't got the money. You see, they just lying. When they fucking need a bailout, the trillions get flying. And when you want your vote, then they can just buy them. Maybe, but first pay me for that redlining. Yo, pay me for that red lining, motherfucker. Yeah, I'm about to come and remind them and all the mining that they did on our wealth. It has a toll on our fucking health. Changing the subject, trying to talk about something else. Now, nah, motherfucker, deal with the cards, but dealt. I seen what y'all done in our communities, taking stuff from us for decades with impunity. It's been a hundred years, and they ain't paying us back. And fuck these politicians, what they saying is whack. If you speak on reparations, better say it with fact. It's for ancestors of slavery, not everybody who's black. <laughs> Yo, these people really want bars, but what I really want is 40 acre front yard. Uh, like David Walker owned for it, got charred. Pay us back for the terrorism, is it hard? Hey, this is Dope Knife. I'm Lingua Franca. And we are waiting on reparations. reparations. See you guys next week. Everybody, be safe. Waiting on Reparations is a production of iHeartRadio. Listen to Waiting on Reparations on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count.